Now, obviously, this is our first episode after regime change. Yeah. (laughs) And there was, you know, a beautiful snow that came down from the sky, and thus the land was cleansed (laughs) as the power was transferred symbolically. And now the country is fixed and COVID is gone and we're okay, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's fine now. I'm actually recording from brunch. I I literally... (laughs) I literally heard a story on NPR this morning. It's like, you know, the virus is going away. (laughs) Swear to God. Swear to God. Welcome to the Death Panel. If you'd like to get an extra episode every week, or you'd like to just support the show, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod, you get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, a discount on merch, and we appreciate all of the support. I get that there's a lot of, I think, weird pent-up energy among people who've been in the media for years, but it I don't like I I don't know how people can with a straight face say things like th- as they did on CNN, the setup of the mall on inauguration day uh, of the DC mall on inauguration day is Biden's arms an extension. It is, I think they said even it is an extension of Biden's arms reaching out to embrace America. Yeah. It's like he's hugging all of those <laughs> tiny flags that represent the thousands of people that are dead and the many more that will die as a result of inaction. <laughs> and then, of course, as we kind of have been warning about a little bit immediately, the uh, some of I mean, even before the actual inauguration um, took place, there were like starting to be op eds around about how like, well, actually, you know, now that now that uh, Biden's people are coming in, looking at where the response is, actually, there's not a lot that Biden can do in terms of huge policy changes. It's like it simultaneously exists, like it can simultaneously exist these two things, like the thing that Phil mentioned of, oh, the virus is going away now. Like we, <laughs> we have our we have our new administration in. They're going to listen to science and they're going to they're going to beat back the pandemic. They're going to crush the spread doing what I don't know, one of their signature moves is going to be opening schools that doesn't as we've <laughs> talked about a lot is not is definitely not going to help crush the spread of the coronavirus. Like, you, yeah. can't, you can't really have it both ways. I mean, I guess you can. That is what is being demonstrated <laughs> right now. But you shouldn't be able to have it both ways. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like largely what I've seen in the past uh, week or so has been this like confusion also as if aesthetics correlate to pandemic response. Yeah. Right. Like if we just change the tone of the briefings, then they will say something different about the death and despair that we see all around us. If we simply have like a sweet redhead without a pancake face of makeup on at that press conference, things will be different versus having the sort of blonde Trump lackey there. And it's it's I get that people are exhausted. I get that they're broken down. I get that it's like disheartening, right, to feel like things are changing, but nothing's going to change. But like meaningfully, I'm not totally sure where the like continued suspension of disbelief is going to get us other than in like a potentially worse position than we are already in right now. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the person under the umbrella, you know, wondering if they should put the umbrella down because they're not getting wet. I mean, that that, that, (laughs) that's all policy. And, And I think and I think that the broader 
like problem with this. And I was like, you know, reading a bunch of articles, actually, like analyzing the Trump response to uh, the pandemic. And, you know, yeah, there there is, you know, a hell of a lot you can do with with like different people saying different kinds of things like that, that hortatory role, that sort of understanding of the executive branch role, I, I, I admit is different. However, there are structural dynamics that will rem- that they just remain because of the way that I don't know many of the authorities uh, who have the responsibility for doing public health uh, what their incentives are. I mean, if you know to the extent that uh, state and local governments still have an ins- like a fiscal incentive to you know be locked into the uh, policy path that they've already chosen. You know, deaths are going to continue to increase. And I feel like th- this is sort of illustrates to me, like, what is the thing I'm gonna, like I'm watching now is like, what are the metrics of success that people are now sort of setting up? Um, that's like the biggest uh, thing that I'm 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 wondering about. And like for me, if it's not like, you know, reduce like literally like reducing the spread, reducing the number of of deaths like what what else is it right totally i I mean i feel like our our measurements for like what is success are going to be really skewed for the next couple of months like that's just like at a bare minimum we have to just understand that that's going to happen and that like you're going to see in the news like these portrayals of things being supposedly different but what that's going to mean for people materially is probably not actually that much of a tangible difference which worries me because i feel like we have this habit in the United States of like overselling policy, right? Um, <laughs> like the ACA, I think is a great example. And we sort of oversell these ideas and like oversell what uh, what some of these changes are going to actually mean to people's day-to-day lives. And to do that in the context of like a public health emergency, such as the scale that we're experiencing right now, where you have such disproportionate death and despair on like communities that are already like pretty disenfranchised due to like just, you know, centuries of structural racialized oppression. Overselling what Biden coming into office means is like a very dangerous thing to do. I mean, that's what that, that's kind of what I mean about talking about the pandemic response, because like there obviously there's, there's a huge uh, pull in the sort of like aesthetics of the transfer basically. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there is, um, and they couldn't have set up like a more obvious contrast, um, (laughs) between these two, because I I don't know how you can witness, for example, even though there is such a great contrast, right? Like Trump does his little, uh, his little farewell address and says like, (laughs) YMCA, you know, yeah. He says like, you know, so long and, uh, you know, have a great life or whatever. Uh, And then like slouches off to Bethlehem, Florida, but like, yeah, to, to the tune of YMCA. Um, and then, you know, Biden comes in and it's this like God awful, gaudy, tacky, whatever it was like Lin-Manuel Miranda in there. Was he just like, you know, spiritually, the spirit, the spirit of of Miranda was, yeah. Like, you know, you have, you have like, uh, like welcome back America hosted by Tom Hanks or whatever. Um, and all of this, all of this sort of like really gaudy pageantry that much like the DNC itself, if you remember the aesthetics of the DNC is really only appealing to like a very specific, uh, you know, type of person. And like, the event itself or the the kind of transfer like i mean you've, if you spent four years building yourself up about this and being like you know orange man bad like who is bad obviously trump it was obviously very bad but like being like he is the one reason that everything is bad right mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who have built that up that much and then you know see him leave and then see biden come in and are like 
he didn't say anything about in his inaugural address he didn't say anything about like really making a lot of people's lives better he just talked about kind of reaching across the aisle and like lowering the temperature and Mm -hmm. stuff it's like Mm -hmm. you know i hope i I guess what i'm saying is i hope that at least for some people that just kind of rang hollow or just felt empty afterwards you know what i mean and i feel like probably like the most telling situation where we're gonna see um very little change portrayed as as like big revolutionary uh, seismic shifts in policy is going to yeah. obviously be the health healthcare space. And I'm not just saying that because this is the death panel and this is our uh, favorite way to torture ourselves, but we are looking at a, I think a really difficult period in like the fight for health justice, because ultimately what we have now is an administration that is incredibly friendly to private insurance and incredibly friendly to pharma and incredibly friendly to PBMs and incredibly friendly to the long-term care conglomerates who own all the nursing homes. And I mean, I think I think it would be important to talk about like what we think we can sort of expect from the Biden administration in terms of healthcare, because obviously there are like high expectations that somehow with this change in office, like things are going to be different. And I think fundamentally we're the four of us are not super optimistic about there being. (laughs) Well, I mean, we never were, but I mean, also how we keep pushing for it under, uh, under the situation too. If I might, if I might just suggest, you know, uh, a way of thinking about this here, right. Which is that, you know, there is the, the healthcare crisis that we're currently experiencing, which is very much a crisis of, you know, simultaneously a crisis of capacity, right? Um, you know, the actual sort of like raw materials of like, can people actually get needed uh, treatments and things like that? And then there's also like a, you know, a coverage crisis, which we haven't even seen. I don't think we've even seen the bottom of it yet. I don't think we've mm-hmm. seen the basement yet because it's important to remember that that there were in the Families First Act, which was the the first like pre-cares piece of legislation that came out. There was sort of two things that happened. One was that uh, Congress topped up the uh, Medicaid match rate for states and they imposed these continuous coverage requirements uh, on on states so that like people couldn't. Uh, states couldn't as easily throw states uh, people off of uh, Medicaid, right? Now, there are two things that are really important to consider with that. One, it didn't say that states couldn't do other things to cut their Medicaid budgets, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, cutting provider rates, things things that could still impact access, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing, and this is like the big, more looming thing that's like in my mind, is that uh, it didn't say anything about uh, changing eligibility, um, and like opening up eligibility, right? Didn't say we're going to like make it easier for people to get Medicaid. And the other thing it didn't do was it said uh, this is going to sunset whenever the public health emergency is declared over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is going to occur regardless of when it does. That's going to occur before any sort of lingering effects of the economic crisis are over. So my, my point is that like things are bad uh, for insurance coverage right now. Um uh, because I haven't even we haven't begun to talk about like under insurance, and, like the, the costs of coverage and all these other things, which are, you know, insane as well. But uh, it's going to get worse just in terms of the raw, like insured, uninsured divide, even after 
the and perhaps especially after the emergency is declared over. So like that is the reason to be focusing so much on like what Biden is like doing on the like insurance side. And like what has come out is this thing that Biden basically just it seemed to copy and paste from uh, America's <laughs> health insurance plans. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the the big sort of proposal in Biden's pandemic relief package is to extend COBRA coverage uh, or extend the full cost of COBRA premiums uh, through the the rest of the pandemic. This is essentially what AHIP uh, had in their letter to Congress on <laughs> December 3rd. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's virtually the same language. Here's Biden's language, okay? And we'll do the comparison. Uh, to ensure access to health coverage, again, access to health coverage, President-elect Biden mm. is calling on Congress to subsidize continuation health coverage COBRA through the end of September. Oh, not even the end of the pandemic. Sorry, the end of September. <laughs> uh, AHIP. Well, um, you know, he's going to solve it by then, so it's it's basically the same thing. Of course. AHIP, uh, providing temporary funding for the full cost of COBRA payments for Americans who lost their job or are furloughed to remove any barriers that help workers and their families stay in their employer provided coverage. You could actually interpret that a hip statement is perhaps a little bit generous because it doesn't have an yes. end date <laughs> yeah that's so um, true oh my god so the other thing let's let's move on to the second uh piece of the puzzle here let's not be ungenerous um biden's also asking that congress this is his language to expand and increase the value of the premium tax credit to lower or eliminate health insurance premiums and ensure enrollees uh will not pay more than 8.5 percent of their income for coverage here's a hip Making market coverage more affordable by enhancing subsidies available to those with incomes over 150% of the federal poverty level. Everyone can, most Americans can understand this, right? This is easy. Expanding <laughs> premium tax credit eligibility and increasing tax credits for younger individuals. Well, not, and not only that, I mean, I think, but th- this is the thing, right? It's like, okay, so, and this is why I think it's so important also to talk about this in the context of this moment of transfer of power, right? Because, okay, so literally, I think, what was it? The, it? Trump's last full day in office, right? It was the day that we officially, that was declared we had hit 400,000 deaths, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've we known all along, I mean, they, you know, Biden was not shy about telling people for the entirety of the primary and for the entirety of his career that he's, you know, obviously a no, he's no friend to socialized medicine, right? Right. But it says quite a lot that you know there like there are certain there are certain goalposts that like liberals are happy to move and there are certain goalposts that are just like like fixed in stone for them like the ones they're willing to compromise on versus the ones that are structural goalposts which uphold the very fabric of reality right exactly and and it is telling that even in this context for example it's still like okay let's just this do this like tiny administrative thing here this tiny administrative <laughs> thing there let's um you know maintain certain people's coverage who are uh, you know the cobra thing is for people who aren't really familiar with with cobra uh it's a program that basically like allows you to extend uh employer sponsored health coverage after you've uh lost your job and so for instance for people who've been unemployed since the pandemic or have become i mean 1.4 million unemployment claims were filed like in the, in this just this last week right it's so, also important to note that cobra is usually much more expensive than what you would be paying when you were still employed so it's sure. a way of retaining your but, coverage but the premium does go up and also mm-hmm. it is still done through private health insurance companies. So this is this is not merely oh let's let's make sure that these people are safe and protected, right? This is we're going to basically keep uh health insurance companies 
um, not just afloat, but fucking singing and cash, <laughs> right? I mean, like they've been extraordinarily profitable for the entire pandemic for a variety of reasons that we've touched on over the course of this show in the last year. But if you, but you know, this is, uh, they're, they're prioritizing, for instance, like paying out um, people uh, you know, to insurance companies, as opposed to even, even the, the minor technocratic things that they could do. Like they we're in a, we're in a, uh, public health emergency, like, uh, like literally officially, but we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a public health emergency. Um, there are a lot of unknowns still. There are a lot of things with like long COVID, for example, that don't have appropriate coding match for them yet. Mm-hmm. You could say, okay, well, you know, everyone who, has the official COVID diagnosis. I know some people have said like even broader things, but even at a very simple level, you could say people who've gotten a COVID diagnosis, they like become eligible to enroll in Medicare or whatever, and they can just be on Medicare for the rest of their lives or something, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? Because we don't know the long-term effects of this. And you could say, well, we're going in, we're a new administration. Uh, what just happened was extraordinarily bad. Uh, you know, 400,000 people uh, at least uh, those are the official dead, right? The mm-hmm. official count. So the, like the actual number by many accounts is is likely higher. So you have not just sort of like the opportunity, but the necessity to step in and make huge moves, right? The things, the thing that the thing that they always say that they're trying to do is like, you know, they want to like they they want to write the ship because there hasn't been real leadership on this or whatever or the or the pandemic response has been so chaotic etc right, right. um and then all they want to basically do is like kind of uh freeze it in place manage it a little better literally the words that tinker with premiums literally the words that Biden has used in recent days to talk about it is we will manage the hell out of this right um and <laughs> not say like okay well we're going to we're going to do something that like uh to make it like set things right etc well the other thing the other thing that i think you have to consider is that like all of these actions have not only effects in the world in terms of like who gets covered who doesn't uh but they also have effects in terms of like what political forces remain around later afterwards yeah. to mm-hmm. to affect the um, the political arena. Right. And that that's why I'm like, if it sounds like I'm rigid on this, it's because I have seen what has happened. I've looked very, very closely at what has happened over the last 20 years. And like what you do when you prop up this part of uh, the uh, health financing system is you hobble. If you actually claim to care about any sort of universalism, you are basically like cutting off your limbs uh, mm-hmm. when, when you when you funnel money to these people. Right. And it's, yeah. it, and so that's why I, I just like it is so important to recognize that like simply because uh, you have a sort of like a gap filling uh, mechanism here, a purported gap filling mechanism. It does not actually, uh, you know, evince any any sort of like commitment to the things that are sort of claimed to be in now in the Democratic Party platform that healthcare is a human right. No, <laughs> it is absolutely not a human right. Hey, it's if, a human right to buy healthcare, Phil. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, yeah it's a human right to buy Access healthcare. Access right? is That's the right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's like you could argue that maybe that like what's being done right now is not enough. But I think that there's room to argue that like what's being done right now is actively harmful, like by just extending Cobra, by not um, by not saying, OK, everybody who's had covid or tested positive for covid now is on Medicare. Right. Which mm-hmm. is totally doable. Like what you're doing is you're going to like contribute to what we're already seeing, which is there's a very high percentage of patients who uh 
get COVID, get hospitalized, get discharged, and are dead within 60 days. Like, I'm not going to mince words here. There have been several longitudinal studies. There's a big one that came out in December that looked at a bunch of VA hospitals that had, like, uh, getting close to 20% of patients that survived their initial battle with COVID were dead within 60 days. And there are, like, serious issues with continuity of care, serious issues with being able to access providers. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of the people that are getting sick are on Medicaid or are on plans with really limited networks, right? So without doing anything to address the fact that there is like a disparity in the way that healthcare is allocated geographically throughout the United States, right? Like a lot of people who are getting sick, some of them have to drive like 45 minutes to two hours to get to a doctor who's in network. That is going to contribute to deaths. So there are decisions that are being made right now that are actively going to exacerbate these like systemic problems with accessing healthcare that I think we need to start talking about this. Like, it's not just that they're not doing enough. It's that, the, that like, in not doing enough, they are proactively killing people. Right. Well, I mean, and this is kind of the like my point about not taking extremely more, much more drastic measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned, like, giving Medicare to everyone, uh, you know, who had COVID. But obviously, what I think would have been the obvious good idea from the beginning is doing Medicare for all and maybe instituting like an American NHS or something and having a big buildup of that, right? Having a much, having a huge public health buildup mm-hmm. um, in addition to creating a single payer. Um, you know, that's obviously what I, what I would um, prefer. But if you don't take drastic action um, around this, what you're, what you're, you know, kind of doing is you're separating it into these two pandemics. You're saying there was like the guy who was before me and those 400,000 deaths. There's the, there's however we're managing it after and like you can't just you can't just say like okay we're going to start as though what's past is past right. you know what i mean if you're not taking extremely drastic action now basically what you're doing is just acknowledging like okay well all the the extremely devastating decisions that were made uh that uh, many of which i'm just going to allow to set in stone like you know not trying to advocate for uh, like lockdown measures, stay at home orders, uh, with like huge social supports, for example, single payer, things like that. You're just basically co-signing stuff that happened. And yeah. The- I mean, it, it's, it normalizes it. And also it's like, where, uh, where are the memos to address stuff like the, uh, hospital closures that we're seeing left and right? Like the day before the inauguration, uh, in Houston, a hospital, I think it's called Heights Hospital in Houston, was forced to close its doors because the owners of the hospital were behind on rent. You had security officers and police officers preventing the doctors who were treating people in the parking lot from going into the building to retrieve equipment and supplies. You know, it really does not do much to extend COBRA if you do not address address like the other problems with the health system that are not new or because of Trump or because of COVID, but which have been exacerbated by the strain on the system because we have not done a lockdown and we are in the middle of a pandemic. Like we we cannot keep pretending that we can just fix healthcare by making small little tiny tweaks to like the cruelty of the copay, right? Like it's not just about the copay. It's the size of the network. It's the distribution of facilities. It's being able to afford your medication. It's like if you somehow lose your prescription, being able to get your prescription again for the month. Like there was a tweet that went viral about a person whose son put their uh, insulin in the freezer by accident and ruined a month's worth of insulin which if he didn't have the means to buy more insulin out of pocket, like he would be dead. And these are the kinds of things that are like not fixed by like by 
by doing any of the thing, things that have been promised by the Biden administration. And like, this is just going to continue to get worse and worse. And I don't think that there's like a point that we're going to hit. And, and people keep being like, well, when are we going to get to that point where it gets so bad that they'll be forced to do something? I don't think that exists. I don't mm-hmm. think that point's there. And I don't think that like waiting for that point is the way to go. Yeah. And there is there is a the, I feel like this this sort of iconography of the first 100 days has a long and rich history, but it is fundamentally and and you know from every single party, every single president, the game of the first one hundred days and the game of the the so called box score, right? Uh, which I, I don't exactly know when people started doing like the presidential like box score, or just like <laughs> applying the applying the sports metaphor uh, to like. Uh, political sort of conversations but like the whole thing is like in sports it's like there's a game there is a set number of ways of scoring points it's like it's very very clear with like politics you can constantly reshape what the you know outcome is true you're trying to score points on and i think the thing that is like important is to like remain laser focused that is like this is a pandemic. Like it is not just a random event that happened. It is an event whose consequences are directly caused by the the way that our healthcare system works. Exactly. You, like you cannot forget that it is. It is. Uh. And and the thing is, mild. It's going to be. It's incredibly easy to develop ways of distracting people from that fact, even if other things improve, even if vaccinations go up, even if the uh, number of cases go down, uh, even if deaths level off it like there has to be not only a sort of prospective, how do we manage this crisis, but a retrospective sense of why the fuck did this occur? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. This reminds me of what we were saying about the really pretty specious anti-lockdown paper that we talked yeah. about in the Patreon episode uh, this mm-hmm. week, which is basically that like endogeneity is a bitch, you know, like <laughs> uh, you have uh, one of the, one of the main things that we have been doing for weeks and months at this point is like tying all of these different things that happen in the pandemic to different factors in our political economy, right? Mm-hmm. Especially around healthcare mm-hmm. and the political economy of health. But like healthcare is so fundamentally tied to like health in general is so fundamentally tied to every aspect of the political economy, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, when there is a mass event that causes mass deaths, that creates um, problems for public health uh, that like, you know, threatens a lot of people. And that also basically, you know, effectively threatens, I guess, what the like the productive capacity of the capitalist state, right? God forbid. um, You know, of of course, that is ultimately all tied in like, you know, not just things that are tied to healthcare, but, um, but, you know, like other other factors that kind of like spiral off of that, too. I think, for example, um, you know, it's really telling the the thing that we spoke about also in that episode in the in the patron episode this week about how among the states that are doing the best in terms of vaccine distribution are those who avoided doing public-private partnerships with big national chain pharmacies. That demonstrates to me, for example, I mean, like, what is the what is the Biden uh, doctrine, right? right? What is the Biden doctrine of public health other than... <laughs> Like public-private partnerships with things like national chain pharmacies, and that's why I'm really concerned about again this you know hagiography of this like automatic hagiography of Biden and Harris, Mm -hmm. um, and about basically everything that they propose about the pandemic so far because like all all the plans that they've dropped like that ain't it 
You right. Know what I mean? and, and I mean, like, I, I understand critique that like our perspective, uh, that all of this ties into like the conception of health and the way that like the conception of health is commodified and and policed and reproduced. Right. I understand critiques that that is like too simple, but I don't think that people who say that about this point that we make here on the show are correct because like as a as a non-healthy body let me just say that the entire structure of our society is built on the verification of health right there is um you know it's tied into things like identity citizenship ownership property uh wealth power etc so like what i think is the problem is that like what we're what we're really seeing out of biden and what we're really worried about is more than anything else is like this fantastic moment that we're in right now and i say fantastic in terms of like fantastical like you can barely believe what's happening is happening every day um, we are in the middle of a, of a pandemic, which is like absolutely unusual, unprecedented circumstances. And even under these conditions, we cannot see a political future where we can take care of people, where we can like break health from commodification. We see the administration of care as an opportunity for public private partnerships. We see this as an opportunity to make inroads into the business community for Salesforce to step up to the plate and help Rhode Island for CVS to help distribute the nation's vaccines. And this like further just obscures the fact that like there are people with needs and that the government is a system of care, right? It's a system of resource allocation, of management and of, of care allocation. And it's a system of risk management. And, and none of this is like being, uh, focused on like an actual individual's material experience of their life right now. It is like focused on the sort of market dynamics of like how these like care systems circulate around you in your life and like what your choices and options are. But like we're so focused on choices and options and having like the right perception of care. And like what actually is the reality is that no one is getting the care that they need right now unless they are like incredibly wealthy. Yeah, I, th- I think that 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 is and it, but it's very, very easy to. Um, hide this fact, even from the people who experience it. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that that is why, you know, this is another reason why the idea that simply because Medicare for all is not right now legislatively the most viable thing on the agenda. Right. Which I, I fully admit. Right. But that right. does not mean like it is completely illogical to say that because that's true. The left should somehow stop uh, or pause or otherwise like divert their attention from this because the reason that you do this, the reason that you focus on this is to emphasize that what people are experiencing need not be the case, right? Uh, that That it is not necessarily a natural thing. Right. So anyway, all of this is to say, I think that, okay, so, you know, obviously, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised listening to this show uh, that we have some serious reservations on the uh, 
I don't know, <laughs> efficacy or <laughs> wisdom, I guess, of the Biden pandemic response. Wisdom is the right way to put it. Um, and no one's going to be surprised, obviously, that um, we are in strong favor of immediate and possibly retroactive Medicare for all and a whole bunch of other uh, stuff, basically. <laughs> At a bare minimum. Um, stay tuned for early February Medicare for all week uh, coming, yeah. coming to your feed uh, Medicare soon. for all week two. Medicare for all week two. That's right. Our second annual Medicare for all so week. So no one we, accuses us of jumping on the healthcare bandwagon here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those yeah. people at Death Panel, they only started talking about healthcare once it became salient. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think all of this is to say that, okay, so no one's going to be surprised by that. That being said, as B joked, it's regime change. It's a new administration. It's, uh, you know, the, these these moments of, of transfer, this moment of transition is really... Uh, important and politically salient, uh, in part only, in part, and if only uh, because, in some respects, you know, a lot of people, you know, what do we do? We demarcate these as like eras, right? There's like the Trump era, <laughs> the Biden era, the Clinton era, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I know that that is only able to be taken seriously up to a point. But what I'm saying is, these are often also moments that people who are, let's say, either opportunists or just sort of like centrist, showing their true colors can use to sort of divert attention and say the strategy that we were just doing didn't work collectively. Right. I mean, you see this, I mean, you see this in really prominent uh, people in with big media platforms on the left, for example, this like black pilled notion of like, well, we tried really hard with Sanders and that didn't work. So we'll never like this, this will never happen or something. And and we all, you know, got what, you know, whatever. I know I'm, I'm being a bit reductive with the argument and and the argument doesn't really matter that much. Anyway, my point is that you see this a lot of like, Oh, we like uh, tried, you know, this amount for four years and, and, you know, we, we didn't get it ergo, like the whole thing was flawed. Right. My point is, I think there um, are probably a lot of people out there, even if they're not like, don't have big media following that their experience of being in the campaign or like, Oh yeah. And it's oh, a legitimate I mean, it's feeling. actually like a legitimate feeling for sure. No, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, and right, right, right. Sorry. I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to like, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want to say that like, if you're bummed out about all this, that like it is not totally valid right of i can course. understand it but i don't agree with it at all right. yeah, <laughs> I, I, can, I can understand it but it, it, it i tried to work against it you know uh and like keep resolved because no matter what it's like what we need hasn't fun has not fundamentally changed no right? no uh you know there we go <laughs> biden has already fulfilled his day one promise nothing will fundamentally change <laughs> <laughs> what we need yeah what we need hasn't fundamentally we still changed fucking need health care and like uh and for example i just want to point to one thing we will uh we are not going to mention the writer because it is uh because whatever you can you can look this up if you want to but it's basically easily found i'm convinced that i'm also convinced that no one has read this article outside side of like a couple of people on the left who are like extremely online who basically universally just like dunked on it uh, mm-hmm. which you know to that to that end thank you uh again author who will go unnamed specifically because if, if you've uh if you've been paying attention to the extremely online discourse in the last couple of weeks there have been a lot of um proponents of medicare for all yelling at each other over a completely different thing so it's good to have someone else to yell at basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also a a good completely completely crossed wires and uh ephemeral thing to to be yelling about too yeah right we love those (laughs) yeah but uh and but so here but here's the here's the point i want to be clear that we're just highlighting this basically because 
this is a very good example of how not to react to an election <laughs> right. or how not to shoot yourself in the foot by basically saying like, well, you know, th this thing that we tried a little bit, like we, that we tried for a little bit didn't work. So like, let's just give up on that and try something else. This is, uh, this is a uh, piece in the independent headlined under Biden. It's time for Democrats to let go of Medicare for all. And it's not like this take is like in any way unique, nor is this writer making it particularly well or awfully. It's just one example of like many of this archetype. This this writer has not done anything special. I want to make that very clear. But this, yeah. is, this is like an alarm bell, like, oh, one of these. Yeah. Like yeah. This kind of thing. So actually, but it's very demonstrative of when you see people make this kind of argument, <laughs> just tell them no. Also, the person, like, but you come know, on. yeah, come on, guy. like the, the author decided to pick a fight with me this morning. So it's like, why not use the example? You know what I mean? But I, I actually want to try to I want to try to understand what's going on in this, because I do think I, I think that it there's a lot of resonances with other parts of like the political ether. It's worth yeah. trying to understand the nature of the claim being made and mm -hmm. why I think it's wrong. It's of such a broad genre type of uh, of like political uh, you know think piece injection that it wouldn't be it, it, like this. This could have been written by Matt Iglesias and I wouldn't be I wouldn't have blinked and, my eye. Yeah. And the other thing, yeah. the other thing to note just at the outset, this is a person who uh, you know I, I'm willing to grant says that they support medicare for all i i don't leave i don't let's let's hold off on whether or not i even doubt whether or not it's true let's just say it is yeah so i'm just going to start uh reading from parts of this i have i have some um some highlights selected that kind of take us through the uh through through the main part of the argument i'm going to focus on why he thinks that we should i don't know disabuse ourselves of like the fight for medicare for all being a thing that we should be trying now i guess mm -hmm. because ultimately what he basically says is we should focus on uh voting rights and uh and and labor rights and it's like uh, you don't maybe see how we can <laughs> those you know, are labor what, what is it what is it that liberals like to say walk and chew gum at the same time yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't see how we can like you know fight simultaneously Come on, on man. a couple battle rounds. I don't know, whatever. But anyway. You gotta kill the austerity in your mind, man. What's that word? Uh, solid, solidarity? 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 I don't know. I can never remember it. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I quote now from this piece. Quote, Over the past four years, the focus of a progressive agenda has been Medicare for all, <laughs> M4A. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders ran on the platform of free health care for everyone in the Democratic primary. He ran twice in 2016 and 2020 and lost both times. President-elect Joe Biden, who won, explicitly rejected Medicare for all. <laughs> Given Sanders' losses ah. and Biden's opposition, it may be time for progressives and others on the left to consider uniting around other goals. Okay. This is a cut in. I just want to cut in on a few things there. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first thing is that the interpretation of the Sanders loss is, is an, you know, uh, has become an interpretation of uh, the loss of Medicare for all. This is wrong um, uh, on a pretty fundamental level. Medicare for all <laughs> um, fundamentally overperformed Sanders in, I think, 
maybe every major exit poll in the big uh, states and the big primary states, certainly the yeah. first one, certainly South Carolina. I think people actually maybe miss thought that Joe Biden, in fact, supported it. There's some evidence of that in South Carolina. Um, wow. And re- regardless of like what you think about the like the quality of polling, um, it, it would suggest at the very least that this wouldn't be something you would want to abandon simply because the one of one of its primary sponsors um uh, came second ca- ca- came, came second, second in, in this contest you know <laughs> I, I think it would be sort of like uh uh if the it's sort of like ronald reagan lost the primaries <laughs> in 76 uh to gerald ford and they would have been you know what why don't we just let, clearly, we lost in this. Like people don't want deregulation. Let's just, let's, you know, that, that would have been like the same sort of dog whistles in the Republican Party. Right. I, guess, I mean, you know. and right. I, I think it's, forever. I, and and so, like again, even if you like have doubts about the sort of veracity of of polling here, at the very least, you could suggest like one. Uh, he didn't necessarily turn people off of Medicare for all. In fact, support for it has only grown. Two, mm-hmm. the number of congressional co-signatories on the prime piece of legislation uh, related to this is now getting close to, if not over a majority, the majority um, whether and, and how deep that goes. It's it's right now. Let's just not even leave that. It's the point is, is this something you continue to push on in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or prioritize pushing or, on, frankly, or, or mm-hmm. prioritize pushing on. And it's like, I don't, I don't see how the evidence is dispositive about the need to like, you know, uh, uh, abandon it. It's like, yeah, there are other things that may, might have an easier path to legislative success. Granted, but uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't see how all of the the sort of accumulated evidence suggests that progressives want to like abandon like pushing on this. This is wild mm-hmm. to me that you would adduce that from this. Right. Also, this thing of uh, uh, you know, given X and Y. <laughs> Uh, it may be time for progressives uh, and others on the left to quote unquote unite under other goals. I just want to say like, I have to be very clear about, about uh, this point. This is shit that people try to get away with constantly and have been and did for years. And this was like the case in like in the first time Bernie ran, this was the case uh, throughout the, uh, throughout the 2020 primary. This is, this is something, this is something that I've heard like other people on, on the left say like things like even, uh, some prominent people who would go unnamed saying like, Oh, like health, health, the healthcare issue is like kids love socialism or is like beginner socialism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like this is something like deprioritize, like for, for whatever reason, people who like color themselves progressives or whatever, there's a faction of them who I am assuming either just like must have just not really thought about it and how big of a fucking change this would be as we'll, we'll get into in this piece, I guess. But there's, there's a, there's a faction of them who, for, for whom it's like never the time or they're like, yeah, that would be a great idea. But like, what if we, what, like we should, we should prioritize this and that first. And it's like, like the idea that every the, the entire thing was like hinged on Medicare for all is like obviously false, um, including the reasons that you were saying, Phil, but also just because like this is not it's not like this was some sort of extremely united front. Uh, so anyway, as I as I continue, so, quote, given Sanders losses and Biden's opposition, it may be time for progressives and others on the left to consider uniting around other goals. <laughs> Sorry. He continues. 
This is especially the case because, despite its importance, ah. Medicare for All, even if passed, is unlikely to radically transform our <laughs> politics. Objectively wrong. But other progressive legislation might. Objectively also incorrect. Wait, yeah. can you read that again? Say that one more time. This is especially the case because despite its importance, Medicare for all, even if passed, is unlikely to radically transform our politics. That that is that maybe that's just like a throwaway statement, but uh, I For mean him, that I would guess. that would be like saying social security Unlikely to radically transform our politics. By 1954, you had Eisenhower writing to his brother, like, if if a party is against Social Security, that party will be, like, no more in American politics. I mean, like, Social Security was a, yeah, absolutely transformed patterns of voting. There, There's just, like, mountains of, of evidence on this. Like, you can say what you want about the strategy. We could differ on the strategy. Mm-hmm. That's just, but that point is just wrong about the outcome. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. like, okay, when liberals defend the ACA, what do they say? Oh, you wouldn't want to fuck up one fifth of the U.S. economy, right? right. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think healthcare should necessarily be one fifth of like the capitalist economy in the United States, maybe one fifth of the, I don't know, productive capacity, but that's like a whole, like a kind of really esoteric walk argument. Uh, and when you just get into like how much actually like, you know, material expenditure it should be, but like fundamentally, like you don't maybe see how there would be some political exigency in like exculpating a fifth of the fucking economy from like putting that under a single federal pair. Right. Also, like Um, you would be decoupling, you would be decoupling insurance eligibility from the labor market, which would just from like a very bare minimum fundamentally transform the political landscape that we'd be working with. Yeah. That's a huge labor It's very simple. It's very, very Uh, simple. (laughs) I mean, also the history as the history of deregulation would show the most powerful and transformative political reforms are the ones that cut their opponents out of politics, right? Once you deregulated (laughs) airlines, you literally got rid of the big four, right? Which meant that like you had to, you had a completely different political environment for lobbying on issues of uh, air traffic regulation. So it's like, imagine cutting out this sector from the political economy. They would not be able to do what they do. I mean, Partnership for America's Healthcare Future would not be able to really exist in the same form. It's, totally. it's, 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 it's wild. AHIP to wouldn't me. be able to suggest reforms that the Biden administration will take. Up. Think of all those jobs. What would we do? Oh, no. I mean, I also um, want to, I, I think, I don't know, a comparison that comes to mind, at least for me as like a queer person, is just like the way that this argument has like sort of very big like marriage equality uh energy you know like <laughs> it's not time for queer rights yet right exactly like you know a uh, a non-discrimination bill we're gonna get to that but people need to be able to get married first you know and like that is an argument that i think i don't know like a lot a lot of queer people have have understood for a long time as as bullshit and then mm-hmm. additionally we just we just went through this this summer. We just had a whole like mainstream media national conversation about abolition and how 
constituencies for like <laughs> issues need to be tied together and then literally the election is like one a president is inaugurated and everyone's like i forget i forgot that i forgot about that <laughs> yeah this this definitely has big uh maybe don't ask to defund the police energy yes you could you could sub in defund the police for medicare for all and this article would read exactly the same yeah but let me but let me like try to like tackle one issue that is like i think nettlesome and i think that a lot of the critics of this like miss right is that the the point or the the argument is like no 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 i'm not somehow you know against uh I, i don't think the left should abandon medicare for all is ultimately what is said but uh but in order to achieve it um we have to do these other things first and like again I don't I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say and indeed I think it's not a, a comment but a prediction that other things that could mm-hmm. in fact mobilize constituencies that support Medicare for all will probably happen in the next Congress um, before Medicare for all happens. Duh. That is like that is a 101 <laughs> level observation. However, it, like it's somehow I just don't see it doesn't make a lot of sense that this article would, if that's the point, it doesn't make sense that you would frame the article around Medicare for all. Why? Mm-hmm, right. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, what, the, the article could easily have said the left, these are the points where the left has the greatest level of convergence with, you know, where their interests are aligned with, with Democratic Party leadership. Fine. That's an oh, article. It's, pra- it's austerity pilled. It's yeah, practicing but, but, austerity but it's, brain. It's like, it's... You, it's like you have to choose between like which thing to fight for or not is the idea here. I don't. I, I regardless. I I can't speculate on where it comes from, but I I do think it's just like a misunderstanding of the difference between say voting on something, prioritizing something, and keeping something alive on the agenda. Those are like three very 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 different things, and you can't smush them all into the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think. I mean, I think the next thing kind of uh, reveals where it's uh, where it's coming from because I think we see. You know, I mean, speaking of Iglesias, much, much like uh, Iglesias has long done the conflation of um, basically Medicare for all as a prop for a Sanders presidency, as though uh, my point being, uh, he continues, uh, quote, Sanders and other proponents of Medicare for all hoped that the legislation could change the political landscape. Their logic was reasonable. Medicare for all would simplify our Byzantine, cruel healthcare system. It would offer relief to tens of millions of people who can't get adequate care. Helping people in this way, Sanders believed, would be a massive vote getter, and it would supercharge participation by working class people of all races. It was a good idea, but it hasn't worked. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read uh, <laughs> one last thing, and then I think I'm, uh, I'm more, more or less done with this. Okay. But uh, he continues. Healthcare reform is complicated (laughs) and technical. Uh, And while progressives took up Medicare for all as a battle cry, other constituencies were less swayed. Sanders lost his primaries soundly twice. His two losses mean that the Democratic Party has seen Medicare for all rejected by voters repeatedly over the last four years. If Medicare for all was going to energize a new overwhelming voting constituency, we would have seen some evidence of it by now. Oh, my couple things <laughs> god where do i even start possibly with the fact that like clearly this does not take into account the constituencies which this like 
policy affects the most, right? Like the idea that Medicare for all is a vote getter and that the point of centering this policy in uh, a campaign is not because the policy is popular. So you want to align yourself with a popular policy that is in alignment (laughs) with your political ideology. (laughs) Right. But the fact that the political ideology itself is some sort of prop in order to lure people into your campaign is just absolutely absurd. And to me shows that you do not know anyone who fucking needs this health care as life or death. You do Mm -hmm. not care about anyone who needs this health care like life or death. And you do not understand the lives of people who need this health care like life or death because it's not that Bernie Sanders is like creating this like mirage out a whole cloth like some Pied Piper trying to lure children into his campaign. (laughs) Like, this is a popular policy because it addresses the material needs of a constituency which is so desperate for this, which has fought for decades for this. And this is something that for decades you have seen the, like, business side of it organize and spend hand over fist to suppress, right? Mm-hmm. So what you actually had was a politician for over who's a century, I- as we've right, talked about for before. over a century. You had a politician whose ideology aligned with a piece of policy. And so those two things became associated in the general public understanding of him as a politician. Like, do you understand how like thought works, sir? <laughs> is but, my but, question. But, but that's even that's that's like overstating the case though, even because if you want to make a critic if you want to make criticisms about the Sanders campaign or like how it was run or like how the field operation worked or like blah 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 blah. Totally fair game Tons of things to go on there. Lots of lots of things to chew over. The one thing you can't say is that people didn't vote. That that people not voting for Bernie Sanders is somehow a referendum on Medicare for all. When yep. indeed many of the like again, look at people's reasons for not voting for him. Medicare for all does not top or even come close to being <laughs> the reason why people didn't vote for him. And right. indeed, a lot of people made the category error. If you look at this, for example, the South Carolina exit polls, that people actually thought that Biden supported Medicare for all. So it's I I am again, you the idea that like Sanders losing is somehow the referendum on this thing that is generational and is just like goes far beyond this like one person is is absurd and it's like if you have problems with the campaign fine just like talk about those that'd probably be a much more fruitful conversation honestly yeah can we zero in for a second on the first line which is healthcare reform is complicated and technical for a second because i also don't want to leave that one untouched because it to me just reads as like The thing that I have heard said to my own face so many times, which is just like, well, do we really have to do that yet? That one's going to be really hard. What Mm -hmm. like is the urgency for healthcare justice or whatever you say really there? Are you sure that your perspective isn't just warped by your own experience and your own personal material needs? You know, this idea that that we should uh, strategically abandon (laughs) something that has broad popular support because it seeks to address a huge and vast and technical injustice is like just inherently sort of playing into like the uh, machinations of power, like 
putting pressure on on these movements to stop. But right? also, because we like, know that that's happening. But who is the we? This is the other thing about this article. Like, who's the we? Or who, who's yeah. like, you know, if we're talking about like the Congressional Progressive Caucus, like I have news for you. Y- you don't need to write this article. That's already what they're probably going to. They're they're already probably going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's they're already they're they're <laughs> already they're already they understand the, the legislative priority structure. But so then who are you talking about? Who are you advising? Us? We? <laughs> Who's the, I mean, like, really, who's the we? Are you telling that the people with, with disabilities are like, she's just like, you know what? Why don't you just get on board with something else right now? <laughs> no. Yeah. Right. Like, whose right is it to say what the boundaries of the agenda are? Spend your energy somewhere else because they're not going to do it. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. What kind of fucking black pill defeatist bullshit is that? Well, well and it, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And the other, I mean, the, the, I mean, the main thing I want to contend with here, because we, you know, we, go in in circles around this entire uh like tiny little thing over over and over again and again i I think it's mostly useful as being sort of instructive for how not to think Mm -hmm. about this um (laughs) basically but i do i want to point out for example like one like you know we've talked about like the the sanders thing and you know for for the most part like for like for me my hope is that we see a genuine movement that can really like i i know that there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of it there that's um m- much of it's still disorganized at the moment but that there is a movement that can sort of concretize in the same very loud way as it was concretized in um in and around and supporting the bernie sanders campaign um specifically around uh medicare for all like regardless of the the candidate this is like an this is a all day every day all the time whether it is a campaign cycle or not issue right and there there needs to be push there like there needs to be push for it like mm-hmm. like regardless so you know we we can talk about the the like sanders connection all all we we want and for the most part except for in the the fact that there are like just basic like complete um misinterpretations of basic events uh in in here right for the mm-hmm. most part the the sort of like relitigation of the the primary is unimportant mm-hmm. what i what i do want to zone in on though is one thing that is present in here that i think is a really common sort of misconception which is the idea that like medicare for all wouldn't substantially change yeah. the political landscape wouldn't change our politics um, and that to that, like, obviously, there are a lot of things to to say, but I just want to kind of point to one thing in particular, which is that, like, you know, there's there's a reason that a lot of Medicare for all uh, advocates, like, for instance, take like Tim Faust, for example, uses the used the term for a while that was like uh, healthcare or Medicare for all single pair is the spear, mm-hmm. right? That like it is the the thing that can pierce like the shield of capital, right? Part mm-hmm. of the reason for that was like the it, it, it's one fifth of the U.S. economy thing, for example. Um, the other part of that is that like under the current political economy, there's no one in the federal government really who's uh, who's like forced to actually care about yes. the health and material well-being uh, of the vast majority of people in this country. You see that in the callousness with with, with which they can treat a pandemic and not really seemingly care about uh whether the majority of people live or die in this country that extends in my mind to the fact that you know the biden's still talking about smart reopenings etc mm. um you know there are regulations on, on insurance sometimes uh bad actors are prosecuted um f- like pharma is a good example like uh when people in the pharmaceutical industry get 
get prosecuted uh, over something like drug prices or whatever. It's almost always because, in fact, they were actually following the rules of the game, but they did so in such a blatant and uh, like, you know, inelegant manner, like uh, Martin Shkreli, for example, where they like stepped outside of the the bounds of what people thought was, was supposed to be like deemed socially acceptable in terms of like just how much sheer exploitation (laughs) they could do to people Mm -hmm. i mean think about think about for example in terms of the like the aca thing the like the rules of the game or whatever (laughs) right the the rules that are in place the extent to which there is like oversight or whatever the extent to which people are supposed to you know uh in the federal government are supposed to care about what you know happens in terms of um people's health insurance for example is very well illustrated in this suggestion again straight out of AHIP that uh, that also has you know become part of the like Biden um, you know ACA reforms thing of we're gonna uh, you know it says in the reform the ACA Biden document uh, we promise to lower the limit on the cost of coverage from nine point eight six percent of income to eight point five percent of income that is literally a guideline for Fucking how insulting. much and to what degree economic exploitation of people for their health is allowed Fucking you know what i mean that is literally what that is there's you can't you you can explain it in a lot of different ways right like oh it's you know the government protecting you to some degree but it's just what it really is it's saying you can exploit people up to this amount anything after this economically amount. and that's just for the premium yeah that is yeah, not we're not even talking about cost pocket. sharing at this point. right yeah. that's right. not even cost sharing that's not out of pocket stuff so i'm sorry in what universe would this not completely change the like this literally creates a this this would be in the in the same way that um we talk about like uh you know phil mentioned social security earlier um social security or like medicare things like that these create huge blocks of people that become people who are who must must be accountable who the state must be accountable to right 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 (laughs) This literally, like Medicare for all, literally puts everybody into one block. This, this article is the basically saying, of give has up. To be to. You have no choice but to lick the boot. Yeah, just lick it. If you if you try not to, you'll fail. So well, what's the well, point? So I just wanted to make well, that point because it's, other, it's absurd. The other thing, t- yeah, the other thing to note is that the, the, when pushed on on some of these claims, the author is like, uh, well. You know, do you think that uh, progressives should vote against uh, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to fifty-five if it comes up? And I'm like, that's not the that's not the Point. question. The, yeah. the right. question. Like, whether or not they would vote on something is a different question of whether or not they should stop setting the agenda, like trying to set the agenda on something, or what Those people should be asking fun- for in the streets, or asking for in the first <laughs> right. place, right, right? Whatever. Like, but the point is, like, yeah, like, it, look, if if they put lowering the you know fifty-five, you know, lowering the age to fifty-five, yeah. You know what? That's going to pass. Like that, that will certainly pass Congress. The Congressional Progressive Caucus would probably be on board with that. They would probably try to get more. But at the end of the day, put, if that's the take it or leave it offer, they're going to put it on. They're going to do that. Yeah. Right. However, that like that that is not the purpose of being a caucus. Yes. Yeah. You'll vote on something if it comes before you. The point is to be able to say or to state or to inform in a in a material way. What comes before you in the first place? That's the entire game. Yeah. And I guess mm-hmm. I would just say that my my main point is, you know, again, we're here. This is the first death panel under the new Biden administration. 
don't let fucking anyone tell you that it's not a good time to push for this shit. Yeah. That's all. What these takes say to people like me is that it is folly to continue to fight for the bare minimum that I'm required to survive. And I want to be very clear about that. And this person is not unique in saying this. There are so many people who believe the lie that we cannot take care of the vulnerable. You know, the ACA has the aspirational catchphrase of protecting pre-existing conditions, but nobody asks how we do that. And within the ACA, there is little enshrined within the bill text or how it's been implemented in practice that meaningfully protects people with pre-existing conditions. So if we're going to claim that as a nation or as a society that this is a priority, then the only way, the only thing currently that's like up for debate at a national level that meaningfully protects pre-existing conditions is Medicare for all. So mm-hmm. functionally, when people argue that this sort of thing is not possible, like what I hear and feel as a disabled person is that the people in my community, the people that I that I share the the world with do not think that I am valuable enough to be worth fighting for. That Mm -hmm. my needs are too big of an ask. My needs are somehow frivolous or too much. And that ultimately at the end of the day is like going to contribute to our like very limited imagination about what we can do in this country and what we can do as a society in general. And like none of this is anything that we have to do. We don't have to like devalue disabled people. We don't have to worry about the cost of care. Like we make decisions to allocate resources on a principle of scarcity. We make decisions to uh, force people to like treat their illness, their disability as an individualized problem. We push people into poverty to teach workers that they should be afraid of becoming injured or disabled out of some big fear that somehow if we if we somehow gesture at the fact that people will be taken care of that the job market will stop cold or something <laughs> like every person that makes this argument that like medicare for all in and of itself is like a non-starter because xyz is just saying, really, I'm sorry, disabled and poor people are going to die. And that's just the way it is. Whether or not they think they're saying that, that's yeah. the effect mm-hmm. in the world that the, that the words have. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think enough people understand that, probably because we just live in the legacy of eugenics and it's all around us. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it informs the, the basic sort of categories that we use to understand the world. And when that is sort of a... That that sort of like deep cultural legacy, it doesn't even occur to you. it. It it's so it's 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 at the level where it's it's like preconscious, right? Yeah. The the you know where, yeah, a, a a variety of categories of people are just rendered not that we don't have to be accountable to them that they that their lives aren't in the accounting. I always think yeah. about the fact that the people who are institutionalized are removed from 
the denominator in the employment rate, right? Like yeah. unemployment yeah. rate. Like, like mm-hmm. it's things like that. The fact that we, yeah, we materially, you know, uh, put these people beyond the bounds of, uh, of accounting. And so we don't have to think about them. We make a surplus population that we exploit and then we hide them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just put put a push them away. Out of sight, out of mind, right? Well, I, I think that's um, the moral of the story. <laughs> I think that's a. I think that's probably a good place to leave it. But um, can I, as we do, as we are leaving it, can I um, read you guys a short ghost story? Oh dear! <laughs> yes. God. This is from the Politico yes. playbook this morning. Oh God, my, my God. Favorite, favorite place for weird tales. <laughs> um. Top Biden Twitter influencers. Oh, no. Biden transition officials heading into the administration today are fans of Nate Silver, Ezra Klein, the New York Times, Vox, and Pod Save America. (laughs) The most commonly followed political writers and reporters among incoming Biden staff are Nate Silver. 44.4% 44.4% of them follow him. Oh my God, they did a survey. Ezra Klein, 39.6% of them follow him. Maggie Haberman, 36.8% follow her. And? Matt Iglesias. Of course. Matt Iglesias, 25.7% follow him. And David Frum, who a full <laughs> one quarter of incoming Biden staffers, Ugh. at least as of whatever this survey is counting of them, follows. <sighs> I just like I want to do the uh, I want to do the version of that. It's like 1935. The uh, the Roosevelt administration, like you know, like 20 percent of these people have read Hegel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God. I mean, Nate Silver posted like legitimate eugenics on Maine just today. So, oh, it's going to be a beautiful four years. I can just see it now. Aren't you excited? It's going to be great. Yep. I think this is a good place to leave it. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash DeathPanelPod. As I said, you get access to our entire back catalog of episodes, our weekly bonus episode, which comes out on Mondays, as well as a discount on merch. And you get to support us. Exactly. Which goes a long way towards allowing us to do really cool shit, like the forthcoming Medicare for All Week 2. Very exciting. Stay tuned for more on that. Does it have a subtitle, like the Medicareening or something like that? Is it... Too fast to Medicare. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think we'll, yeah, we'll just leave it there. That's the best place to leave it on that fucking horror story, right? As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. All right. Bye bye. Good. Even if they don't want you to.
I just feel like very moved because Garth Brooks <laughs> sang Amazing Grace. So blind people were mentioned in the uh, inauguration ceremony <laughs> yesterday. No. So I, I'm here Shouts to announce that. to Garth. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now um, fully in support of Biden because I feel seen. <laughs> the, uh, I was really sad that he didn't sing his really weird song from the 90s, The Red Strokes, where the video is him being lowered into a pool of red paint in which he almost drowned. Um, <laughs> one of the weirdest Garth moments. I encourage you to watch that video. It's really cool. I have not seen can that. I, can I, I, can I, I urge you. Can I, can I admit something uh, yeah. on... On air, on mic, <laughs> yeah, on mic. I until until yesterday when I was forced to look up Garth Brooks, I did not know the difference between him and Mo Brooks. No. Um, <laughs> did you ever watch MTV at one o'clock in the morning during the late nineties, early two thousands? That's no. See, this is yeah. this is like a this is like a crucial. <laughs> Uh, generational break like between like s- somewhat mid to late millennial and like early millennial. Did you ever okay. watch MTV2 on the anniversary of the Confederacy? 